Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Festive Kwanzaa, Wonderful Winter Solstice, Ramadan, let's have some fun! What's going on? This is Bubbles. This is Julian. This is Ricky. Adam Voith. Les Ingram. Bob Rupp. Rick Farrell. Louis Messina. Mike Barsh. Jay Williams. Lucas Keller. JJ Kassiri. Lucy Lawler Freese. Mark DeTori. Dave Geller. Mike Ducharme. Holly Gleason. Grant Aslan. Dan Berkowitz. Nick Gold. David Britz. Scott Aller. Jim Cressman. Benji Gold. Lenore Kinder. Scott Pang. Simon Shaw. Mike Luganbill. Steve Littman. Bob Rue. Tom Odridge. And you're listening to Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Hold Ho, ho, ho. Merry yeah, Christmas. Not so fast, you fat jolly bastard. Oi, this gift is from the house of Hanukkah Harry. Happy holidays to all the Gentile boys and girls. And of course, my chosen ones, too. It's Pomoda 101, 12 days of Christmas. That's right, Hanukkah Harry. It's Promoter 101. 12 days of Christmas special. Surprise interviews each and every day from now until the 31st of the year. I'm Dan Steinberg, and now unveiling our featured guest today, Luke Pierce. Hey, Luke. Thanks, Dan. It's the second day of the 12 days of Christmas on Promoter 101. It's a new featured interview every week, something short and sweet for you to enjoy during the holiday break. And today, we're joined by legendary rock journalist and author of Women Walk the Line, How Women in Country Music Changed Our Lives, Miss Holly Gleason. She's going to be here to talk about her new book and her amazing history in covering all of the music business. Hey, this is David Britz from Works Entertainment, and you are listening to Promoter 101. We continue our world tour. Catch us when we come to a town near you. Next on deck for Promoter 101, we'll be live at the FlyCon Conference in the Big Easy, New Orleans, January 16th at 2 p.m. We'll be recording Promoter 101 live with a special guest from Lockin and the Brooklyn Bowl, Mr. Peter Shapiro. Looking forward to it, Dan. Yeah, and you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at The Jew. The show's at Promoters 101, and it's plural, Promoters with an S, 101. And you can always catch Luke at W. Luke Pierce. Of course, it's Dan and I talking every week. You hear enough of us, but it doesn't have to be that way. We're ready to listen. Send us an email with your ideas to steiny at promoter101.net. We can't wait to hear what's on your mind, and we give you our sworn promise to respond to every inquiry in a timely manner because you matter to us. Hi, it's Jake Gold from the Management Trust in Toronto, Canada. Yes, Canada, where all you guys want to eventually live. You're here on Promoter 101. Dan, while this is a short podcast, we don't want to leave out birthdays this week. So celebrating some birthdays this week from December 23rd to the 31st, 2017. Saturday, December 23rd, Raji Bear and Jordan Rathman. On Sunday, we're wishing a happy birthday to the international man of mystery himself, Mr. Ali Rosenblatt from Simblad Live in the UK, plus Triple Eight's Bruce Kalmick and Nick Gold. Monday, December 25th, that's Christmas. Jamie Kitman, drummer Josh Freeze, and Phil Potter. 
On Tuesday, the day after Christmas, we're wishing a happy birthday to Gabe Apodaca. On Wednesday, Portland promoter Jason Feldman and AEG's Bobby Reynolds. And on Thursday, the 28th, we're wishing a happy birthday to Cashed Out's Doug Benson. Friday, writer extraordinary Larry LeBlanc and tour manager to the stars, Sasha Babanji. On Saturday, wishing a happy birthday to manager Rob McDermott. Sunday, December 31st, that's New Year's Eve, baby, comic Amy Miller, writer Holly Gleason, that's right, on her own featured week, it's her birthday, and Leftover Salmon's manager, Johnny Joy. A happy birthday to y'all from the gang at Promoter 101. Hi, this is Scott Perry. You can catch me on Promoter 101 with Dan Steinberg. Promoter 101's Badass of the Year 2017 was just announced. It's Andy Summers. We're so excited. Congratulations. It's the highest honor this podcast has ever bestowed on anyone. No kidding. Well, I'm quite honored. I'm quite honored. I was very bad sitting on my ass all year. (laughs) It's a badass of the year. (laughs) Thanks. Happy holidays to you and everybody else who listens to this podcast. Winkle J. Moose on Promoter 101. Now here's something you'll really like. Like we said at the top of this podcast, it is the 12 days of Christmas. This is day two. And Dan, our featured guest today, our only interview, is going to be legendary rock journalist and author of an amazing book, Woman Walk the Line, How Women and Country Music Changed Our Lives. It's a collection of personal essays from a diverse group of women in the music business paying tribute to some amazing female country artists who inspired them. Stories from people who were inspired by people like Brenda Lee and June Carter Cash and Dolly Parton and Amy Lou Harris, Cinda Williams, and so many more. This is an incredible book. We're excited today to welcome to Promoter 101 its author, Holly Gleason. Promoter 101, we're at the IEVA Conference in Nashville, and I'm joined by author and industry icon, Holly Gleason in the room. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with the book, and then we'll work backwards. Okay. Women Walk the Line, obviously, famously Johnny Cash title, like, tweaked for your new book. Actually, it's an Emmylou Harris song. From 1985, the ballad of Sally Rose, purportedly the country rock opera about her relationship with Graham Parsons and how she emerged as an artist. And it's the pivotal song where she realizes you have to make your own dreams come true. And she's gone out to hear some music and figure her life out. And that's the title. Super cool with just the title alone. What's the book about? It's 27 women writers looking at the female country artist who changed their life in some way. And it's really a pretty cool testimony to the power of music. Some of your favorite contributors? They're all my favorite. <laughs> Look at you. What the, the spin on this one. Awesome. Oh, it runs the gamut. I've got a food activist named Allie Burlow from Martha's Vineyard, who is a big proponent of the local food movement, wrote the Food Activist Handbook. She does an Emmylou Harris essay about paralyzing grief and how music can puncture it and give you access to your life. I've got the Fisk University poet in residence, Carolyn Randall Williams, writing about Rhiannon Giddens, who just got the MacArthur Grant. She is a young, brilliant black woman who was on a movie set with Rhiannon um, for Denzel Washington movie. And she, in looking at Rhiannon, saw her own life reflected back to her, as opposed to being a young black girl raised her mother's Alice Randall, who was Garth Brooks's first publisher, who wrote Trisha Yearwood's X's and O's, who has been around the music industry forever, but being a young black girl in the country music world... Doesn't really connect. 
And there was Rihanna Giddens. Yeah. It's an awesome outlet to display that. That's great. Yeah. And I think when we see things, we can do things and be things. And for Caroline, there was that. You've got Holly George Warren, the author and historian. She starts out as a kid who is a punk in a band, finds Wanda Jackson, gets her whole girl power manifesto on. And gets her grooving. Then ends up becoming friends with her. Her husband plays in a band with Wanda for some events, gets to watch Wanda Jackson flirt with her husband. Can you think of a better? But then as she evolves and becomes a mother and is off doing research, Wanda Jackson also teaches her about being a mother who has a career that drives. So it may be my most favorite. I've got kind of an Oreo cookie. On one side, I've got Roseanne Cash's eulogy for June Carter Cash. I was at the funeral and heard her deliver it. And I was so stunned by the beauty of the words, but also the way Rose really captured June's essence, because she was so loving, she was so welcoming, she was so classically Southern, and I thought, it's a shame this dies in this room. And then when we got the contract to do this, that was my first ask. I reached out to Rose and said, would you consider? And she graciously did. But then the other side of the cookie, the Roseanne Cash essay is written by a woman named Deb Sprague, who grew up working class Cleveland, very deer hunter kind of situation. You get out of school, you get a job in one of those factories that Springsteen writes about, you get a ramshackle little house, and you start pumping out kids to continue the cycle. Mom was like, not my kid packed him off to school and got a degree, ended up being an editor-in-chief for Cream Magazine and talks about the expectations of Roseanne as country royalty, you know, what her music needed to be. But what you don't see coming, the hairpin turn is Deb Sprague was actually David. And as David was transitioning and living as Deb on the weekends, started going to the office on a Monday morning after a weekend living as a woman, didn't KP quite as well as he thought, goes to interview Rose. She grabs his hand and goes, we're wearing the same color nail polish. (laughs) And in that moment, he realizes she knows. She's so welcoming. She's so June Carter. She sits down right next to him, does the interview. And the real realization and the beauty of these essays, they're all kind of fairy tales that really happened. You know, every writer has a realization or a truth. And in the David essay, Deborah not only gets accepted and welcomed, but she realizes the reason Roseanne Cash is so fulfilled, she knew there were 6% of the people in the world who were going to really love her music, not her dad's music, not the music a country music princess is supposed to make. And she decided to make the music that was authentic to her. Deb Sprague decided to truly embrace being the authentic person she's meant to be. Amazing. We'll put a link up on the website when we air the interview to the book, which I imagine you could get on Amazon. Absolutely. Amazon, I always advocate, go to your local bookstore, talk to a salesperson, have that tactile. Because in music, you know, we can go out and see shows. We have that moment of communion. You may not be able to find myself or uh, Madison Vane or Emily Yar or Ronnie Lundy, who wrote the James Beard Award top book this year called Vittles. She does Hazel Dickens for us. You may not be able to find them, but you'd be amazed the relationship some of the booksellers are having with this book. 
it's kind of funny. The industry alone is an acquired reading thing. And a lot of that is the airplanes, transportation involved with the industry. It's funny. We had Jeffrey J. Fox on not too long ago, who's very successful business author. And he sent me a note a couple weeks after the podcast. He's like, do a ton of interviews, but the most business minded audience I think I've spoken to on the podcast. And I saw immediately the dip up that Amazon was like, what happened this week? Do more oh, of that. And, well, yeah, Because no. the industry reads because they travel more. Everyone's covering shows and people are picking up books and actually getting away from a screen for a second. And I found that to be really exciting about the industry within itself is our industry still picks up books. And we're invested. We want to be stronger, better people. One of the things about the music business that it's hard to get civilians to understand is we're thinkers. We're thinkers and we're dreamers. And the reason we're able to create so much innovation and amplify life the way we do is just that. Where do we let our minds go and how do we feed our minds? Feel like Kermit the Frog hoping the dreamers. Gosh, and I feel like Gray Slick. (laughs) (laughs) The book is what you're doing now, but you've got an epic career. How do we go from college to making money in the industry? Well, I was making money in the industry in college. So I was the performance magazine market correspondent for Miami, South Florida. For those of you that don't know, Polestar is basically the same thing as performance was or the hybrid of what it became, but they were the original business. We were the originals. I was a kid and they ran articles. I think there was a lot more editorial in performance. Polestar sort of stripped it down and, and made it more news. They also did something on top of the directories and top of the reporting of shows. Both papers used to run routings for every act. Before bands had websites, you you could see all the tours for react, so you knew where the traffic was. It was ran mostly so you weren't competing with another show, and you could see where everybody's itinerary was in one place. Was there traffic control? It was. But now we have websites, but it was really helpful because you could pick up a copy of either Polestar or Performance and see who else was out and where the routing was so you weren't on top of them because not all agencies talked. And there was a lot more mom and pop shops back in those days with all the conglomeration later. it's Now you see most of those guys in the same hallway. Jay Williams can go down the hall and talk to Joey and find out where they're going to be so you don't have Dirks and Miranda in the same market on the same night. That stuff can happen in a board meeting now in the same room, whereas before there was 19 different agencies in Nashville that had headliners. Everybody didn't necessarily talk. And a lot of top promoters, too. Both sides of the business have certainly changed. So there was that, and then I was writing for the Miami Herald. I was writing for Rock and Soul. I was writing for Black Miami Weekly. I was writing for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. I started writing for Tower Records Pulse magazine as a junior in college. So I was making a reasonable living as a freelance writer from the time I was 19. And then the Miami Herald didn't have a job for me when I graduated. I went to the Palm Beach Post, got fired for uh, supposedly being on the take from the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and Southern Pacific and sleeping with Sam Kinison, to which I replied, ooh, I've seen him in a Speedo. Um, You even look a little queasy. Well, I'm just trying. Uh, uh, those those are awesome accusations, which are so fucking cool. And so fucking wrong. <laughs> One of the things, because I was so young and I looked super young, bands remembered me. I'm a really good interviewer, probably better than I am a writer. So people would remember and I would have access. When Neil Young came 
to South Florida, I would be the one that got the interview. When David Lee Roth was doing his first solo tour, he had to talk to the Miami Herald because the publicists lost their mind when they found out he talked to the Palm Beach Post. And that was so print used to be like country radio, where if you're doing something for one station in the market, you got to do it for the other. You got to keep it fair. That or I think the Palm Beach Post was 270 and the Herald was a million statewide. So I don't think there was any retribution. I just think it was like... Well, this was a stupid allocation of resources. So you mentioned a claim of being on the take. Was journalism and is journalism looked at the same way as payola where everything's no. got to be organic? No, not at all. It was it was a guy who eventually got stripped down to editing advertorial who was in over his head. And his way of surviving in the job was to create problems with every single person on the staff. And most daily papers, especially in the 80s, were run by people who are pretty classic suburban dads and housewives. And you, when you're an entertainment writer at a daily paper, and I think it's back to it now because all those staffs are so short, you don't have people that know entertainment running your departments. So this guy would just put a target on you. And actually the classical music writer, I believe, won a lawsuit for age discrimination. Because this guy, like I was, I think, the third. The TV writer was second. And then I believe the movie critic just got sick of his crap and quit. But, you know, it sounds good. To civilians, it sounds good. Like, why would anybody pay to be in the Palm Beach Post? Think about that. Well, I mean, why would anybody pay to be on radio? Exposure is exposure. But it's an interesting thing because obviously when you're reading something, you want to feel like you're reading something that's being genuinely written, not artificially like fluffed up. So it kind of makes sense why you wouldn't want that. But I'd never thought about it's Rolling Stone, New York Times. I imagine that would be a real thing. Like but the concern not. of that. I mean, I think they're two truths. And it's interesting because I did a panel at the New Music Seminar in I think 1990 or 91 with Dave Marsh, Greg Sando, the original music editor of Entertainment Weekly, Chris Gow, Nelson George, J.D. Considine, Steve Morse. Or no, Milo Miles didn't did that one, not Steve Morse. And another person, the guy who got my job, who it turned out was actually on probation for taking a trip on Virgin Airlines when they first started to London, sort of wanted to talk about being too close to sources, which was a sideswipe of me. And the irony was he just wanted to be friends with people. And I've never done it for access. I'm People that know me know I know a lot of people. If you've been watching the social media on Women Walk the Line and seen all the people holding the book. But I think in order to write, you also have to have enough distance to be able to step back and look. And he swung at me and Greg Sando from Entertainment Weekly said, how can you do a good job writing about an artist if you don't have access, how can you think you understand? If you're not close enough or aware enough to know what's going on, all you're doing is conjecturing and you're as likely to get it wrong as you are to get it right, which I thought was fascinating. And the other thing that Sando said after the panel was, if you can be sold out for a dinner or access, then you're not probably very good at your job. Because if you're really good at your job, people are going to want to talk to you. Cameron Crowe, almost famous. Was that the life? Did he get it right? Yeah. It's funny because my songwriting name is Lady Goodman. 
And when I wrote Better as a Memory and I was looking for a name and I wanted to use that, I asked Cameron, do you mind if I do this? And he emailed me back and he said, well, let me hear the song. And he liked the song and he said, okay. So he blasts Lady Goodman, who, by the way, is not Penny Lane. There can be told, a secret that can be told. And he, um, I think he got really close. And I, he says, you know, I was the next baby rock critic because I was 17, 18 years old when I started being published. And I was 19 when I started writing for big publications. There is a little bit of that patting kids on the head. You know, here, we'll get you a cookie. You know, <laughs> I remember when I did Neil Young for Tower Pulse for the Old Ways album, I had three different sit downs with him. And I used to get dressed to be as disarming as possible. So I had on a pink and white check dress with a braid with a pink brocade jacket over it and pink cowboy boots. And I'm sure when I walked in the room, he was like, oh, my God, it's little Bo Peep. <laughs> he gave me an amazing interview, you know, because once I start talking, the contrast is heightened and you realize I'm smart. I did it because obviously I was going to look like a 20 year old girl. So my third round with him was after the show. And I remember leaving my tape recorder on the bus. I had an outer body experience and I thought, oh my God, if Tisha Floyd and Joanne Perino could see this, they would so lose their stuff. <laughs> I think I was a little less, you know, when did you get so professional? And, and he said to me, he goes, I, you know, I don't stay in my hotel room. I told my road manager to give you my room. So you don't have to call your step grandmother to come get you. Cause I was so young. I couldn't have even rented a car. And about 25 minutes later, I was standing with the tour manager who was talking to Mike Belkin, and here comes driver Dave. Were you guys in Cleveland? We were in Cleveland. I'd gone home. I got to go to the Coliseum back in the day. And he taps me on the shoulder, and he goes, hi. And I'm like, driver Dave, what are you doing here? And he holds out my tape recorder. And I'm like, oh, God. And he says, oh, you know, it's okay. I said, oh, I'm so embarrassed. What an idiot. And he said, well, he said, we were talking about you after you got off the bus, so... Neil didn't want to rewind it and just know that's on there. I was like, okay. I said, well, you were really nice to do that. And he goes, yeah. He goes, you know, you're really smart and, and Neil liked you. Normally we would have just sped the bus up and thrown it out the window. But, you know, that's that thing of when you're a kid, I think people will give you a little more margin. Also forget you're there a little easier. Because certainly in the movie, Cameron showed that they weren't paying attention to him half the time. Right. Like at the table, before he told them that they were going to be out of the cover, he could, the guys, 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 nobody would stop talking to listen to him. He was there, but he was barely there. And that's the beauty of it is you, you learn a lot. And that's also how I learned about how the concert promotion business worked. I would be sitting in rooms sometimes when they'd settle shows. They'd just forget I was there. Settlement is such a boring thing, especially back then. Oh, yeah, I learned all about advertising, you know, how that gets taken out of the back end and what goes on with the catering issues and when you've got to bring in special security and how they fight about who pays for it. And, oh, no, it was fascinating. I promise. I love sitting in other people's settlements and watching how they do it. I geek out on it. But I don't think the world in general, unless you understand what's going on and being discussed, I don't think it's nearly as exciting as talking to Neil Young. I think it's all interesting because how it works is how it works. And I would have a sense when I'd be interviewing bands why things were working or weren't working. I knew what was there and what wasn't there, which eventually would pave the way to artist development. But, you know, first we have to go, first we have to get fired and we have to move to California with the boyfriend who co-managed John Prine and founded Oh Boy Records and Red Pajamas, Dan Einstein. A 64th cousin, one of the smartest men I've ever met. And Did you say 64th cousin? That was one of the first things he told me. It worked. <laughs> okay. He thought, you know, Steve Goodman had leukemia. They couldn't get him a record deal. And he wanted... 
Stevie to be able to have a place to make all his music. So they figured out how to pioneer DIY records. You know, everybody thinks Ani DeFranco invented it, but there were a bunch of people, little people doing it. And when it worked for Stevie, Prine was like, I don't really like record company people. Why can't we do it for me? So after his run at Electra, he started Oh Boy. And that's sort of how I met them. In fact, Prine was our Cupid. Oh, how cute. Would Prine have been a bigger mainstream name in the long run if he had a major label out there pushing him? I think he'd be done. Because there's no question that when you look at the icons, the Willies and the Merles, like John Denvers, he's in that class. He's one of those guys. Well, but he was never a country artist. No, he's a folk legend, but the yeah, guy's he was amazing. Also more of a rock guy. No, I think that the reason John Prine now is John Prine is because all those years he never had to make records he didn't feel good about because somebody had some idea how they were going to get him on the radio. Or, gee, MTV's big. Why don't you? I remember when they made the picture show video from the album Howie Epstein from the Heartbreakers produced, and Tom has a cameo in it. It was very black and white. It was a Jim Shea video whose visionary did a lot of those classic second wave California covers, like the Ronstadt living in the USA and Simple Dreams. And John was very interested in it being something that could stand as an art piece, not just a piece of marketing material. At this moment, the guys that everybody wants to see all want to play with him. Jason Isabel and Chris Christopherson. The list goes on for days, but he's the guy that everybody wants to be on stage with. Well, Christopherson discovered John. He was playing in Chicago. Steve Goodman opened for him, and he was like, God, you're really great. And Stevie said, well, if you're so tweaked by me, come on. You got to see my buddy. And they went over to the Earl of Old Town, where John had just finished. And I can't remember who Christopherson was dating, but it was a movie star. And the owner, like, immediately took down four chairs, pulled up some beers, said, go ahead, John, play. And two days later, they were on a plane to New York, and they both got deals out of sitting in, I want to say, at the bottom line. Carly Simon actually got up and sang with John. Lots of girls got up and sang with John. It's in my book. Tanya Tucker, Angel from Montgomery Story, where John got called in to sing harmony. And he says, I don't really sing harmony. She goes, I don't either. Just sing with me. You know, and there they were in the vocal booth with her bronc bucking boyfriend passed out on the couch. I think John was in a cold sweat. I feel pretty confident about that. From California to Nashville, how did that jump happen? Well, when I was in California, I started writing for the LA Times pretty regularly and Rolling Stone, BAM, Musician, Mix, Harper's Bazaar. So I was a pretty well-established freelance writer. And then the breakup happened. You have these moments sometimes where you know you're not going to get married. We were engaged, but I'm like, this isn't right. I'm not his forever. He had gone to South by, came back, and he got the news upon walking into the apartment. I go, I have to tell you something. And I needed a real check. I needed to know every two weeks there would be a check with a set amount so I knew I could cover rent because I had moved straight from Florida to Dan's apartment in Silver Lake. And we lived in Silver Lake when it was dangerous, not cool. I heard that they were hiring at Hits Magazine. Roy Traken was going to details and they needed a features editor and they couldn't find somebody. And Traken called me and goes, you serious about wanting a check? And I said, well, I don't know, maybe. Why? What have you got? Because Hits was always a great place to freelance, but there was so much competition because everybody wanted to freelance for Hits. He said, I'm, I'm leaving and they haven't been able to find a features editor. Do you want to come over and interview? And I was like, okay. So I was the features editor at Hits for almost two years. 
And then, because when you're out in the valley, when you're in Sherman Oaks, you're really near the Sportsman's Lodge, you're really near Jerry's Deli, and you're not too far from the Howard Johnson's Beverly Garland. Where all the bands stayed. Well, all the country bands, for sure. So I would be having lunch with all kinds of gold and platinum artists, and Dennis and Lanny's thought they saw advertising revenue walking in and out of the building. So they decided, that's when they decided they'd start the country section. And I remember standing on the veranda with Lenny going, this is great. You'll be able to live with all your friends and it'll be like nursery school with all your favorite people. And I'm like, I don't want to go to Nashville. He goes, well, you're going. And then Dennis talked to me and said, you can't sell advertising if you don't live there. You can't, which I don't think, I think it might've been more successful if they'd let me stay in Nashville, but they moved me here. And they didn't understand that it was a different record business. And it really was. We were talking earlier about how country has become very pop. And some of those new country albums are being released the same way a Katy Perry album is being released. Very much promoting those to the active youth market. And they're dropping those albums very much in a pop moment. Well, I would say since Randy Travis, there's been a focus on youth. And I think we've tried to reach out to youth. I remember doing CMJ. I mean, main support for Florida Georgia Lions is Nellia. You can't get much more pop than that. But we had Lionel Richie in Alabama. We had the Pointer Sisters and Ronnie Millsap. It's a great crossover. But that's what I'm saying. And there was a lot of crossover. I think that there was a thing where the history, because everything, and I talk about this a lot about why this book, a lot of stuff that happened pre-internet doesn't exist because newspapers are so short they're not cataloging their mark. They're not going through and saying what all was written and how does it work. We've always had a pop crossover. Ronnie Millsap had a video, an actual rotation on MTV called She Loves My Car. That's news to me. Right. That's my point is it's all lost. Somewhere on Microfish, somewhere, I'm sure. It's not, though. That's just it. You'd be surprised what doesn't exist. And by the way, go find a kid that knows how to research Microfish. If it's not on Wikipedia. Or, or a Microfish player, a, a machine that can actually show well, you I that. Think Maybe some of the newspapers still have them if they've kept their active archives, but some people have dumped their archives. It's just not that important. And it is important. What's the last time you saw a microfiche player? Like maybe at a library if you asked for it in the basement, they probably have Well, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame library, they have it for sure. Because I was there researching a book on Emmylou Harris last year. I was one of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Case Western Reserve Study for Pop Music fellows last year. That's so cool. Oh, I know. Very geeky. Do you need special permission to get into that archive? I think you have to write them and tell them what you're going to do. Like, I don't think a fan could just show up on Saturday and go, I want to see everything on David Bowie. But they try to make the archives fairly available. I didn't know that that side of the Hall of Fame existed. That's very, very cool. Oh, no, the Hall of Fame's library is ridiculous. Ridiculous. And you have to give them your resources list, like what it is you're looking for. They'll pull books for you. They'll throw you everything that's cataloged, and you can earmark what you want. You go to a special room at Cleveland Community College. They have an area for them to deliver materials to, and you sit there with gloves on and go through things, yeah. Protecting the history. My point is that... We act like some of this stuff is just being invented for the first time or the modalities are just happening for the first time. I think there are two things about country music. One is we have a lot more working, lower working class people. So they like to own what they own, some of them. They want to buy that record. People are always amazed that we still sell physical product. You know, it's not just streaming. It's not just downloads. It's because people want to own that piece of who they love. I love Kenny Chesney. I want to buy that record. Or I love... I mean, Starbucks doesn't even sell CDs next to the register anymore. I know, but guess what? A lot of the people that love country music are not going to Starbucks. 
they think that's bougie nonsense. Right. But Walmart's probably moving more CDs than anybody else in the world combined. And Amazon. One of the things that they're finding with Amazon's music streaming service, they are leading country streamers by somebody I want to say said 40%. So are people listening to it and then clicking and actually buying physical product and having it delivered? Well, I think the the streaming stuff, well, kids are kids and they're not loyal to any format. I think the country fans, because they are loyal to their artists, they know who they love. It's interesting. I teach at MTSU. I teach music criticism. And at the top of the semester, and I always get those kids that love Kenny Chesney. I just want to take the class with the girl that's worked with him for all those years. One of the first questions I ask on day one is, tell me who you love. What artists do you love? And I get a lot of kids in recording industry management classes, potentially majors or minors, but taking those classes that look at me like deer in a headlight. They can't tell you. And I'll be like, okay, well, I'll just sit here for a minute. When you guys want to tell me who you love, we will go forward because I want to get a sense of how to make this class work for you. So you build that list of who they're listening to as a playlist for the semester because you want it to be relevant to them. Well, I want to know that when we're talking about things, sure, but they can't do it. And then finally someone, and I'll be, and by the way, if we're going to play stump the teacher, no, I will research the hell out of this artist. And we will be talking about it next week. So if you're just playing Stump the Teacher, <laughs> good luck with that. And it's interesting to me to see that they may say, well, I like everything. I like rap and I like pop and I like, but they don't care the same way. And I think that's also why we're seeing declining sales. Like they may love Rihanna, but they think she's cool. Whereas somebody that loves Brantley Gilbert or loves Jason Aldean or loves Miranda, there's a lot of identification going on. There's so much intense, just amount of assets for an artist in the world now between the websites and the Twitter and the Facebook and YouTube and Instagram. Some artists tweet seven times a day. You can really get to know a sense of who the artist is, or at least they're trying to make you think they are. We had the album cover in the J card, and if it folded out, we had twice as much. And we'd listen and look at that and stare at it for hours to the point where we knew Ted Templeman produced the Van Halen album because we looked at it so much. We memorized every part of it. Every album we had, if we played it, we looked at those things. We flipped through our albums. We didn't know nearly as much, but we knew everything about what we knew. I think there's so much more now. I don't think anybody knows anything. Well, there are three truths. Because I think about this because I teach it. Truth one is when we made an investment in a record, it was a commitment. My essay in the book is about Tanya Tucker. And I talk about the decision to buy TNT. It was $5.99. And if I bought that and I saved my money, I might be able to buy two records next week. Mm-hmm. Right? So it meant something to us because we had to commit. And sometimes we buy records and be like, ugh. Or you keep listening to the record because, well, you spent your money on it, you know? Eh. I bought um, Nursery Crimes by Genesis because a bunch of caddies that I knew, I was a championship golfer as a kid, were really into Genesis. And I just remember going, squonk, huh? <laughs> okay. Or no, I guess it was Trick of the Tail. But I'm probably conversant in Genesis because I did buy that record. And so I needed to know. But I also think that Yeah, you've got artists tweeting seven times a day, but what are they saying about their music? How are they drawing you into it? It's like, oh, going through pickup line at Wendy's, going to get a Frosty. It's like, okay, well, maybe you're like us and we love outrageous and we love clothes and shoes. I remember saying to Frank Liddell, Leanne Womack's husband, when your wife wants to stop making it about shoes and makeup, come back because I had done I Hope You Dance. And when she put out The Way I'm Living, I came back and I worked that record. 
because the people that have been working with her prior had made it about fashion week. And she's a beautiful woman. I don't, I think it's fun to play with hair and makeup and clothes. And, but I don't think when that becomes three fours or four fifths of what you're talking about and people love it. You can't give them enough of it. I'm a big believer in when it's all about your baby and it's not about your music, you stop selling your records because there's no reason to buy the record. And the other thing with the tweeting, and when I show you this, you're going to be like, oh, damn. And I do this in my class. I'll ask how many kids, how many of you guys intern for management companies or labels? And, you know, I'll get about 11 hands, usually in the class of 20. I'll be like, how many of you guys do the social media? And you'll probably have four to eight. You know, I've had a semester with eight kids doing social media for the management company. I'll be like, do you guys do artist stuff? And they go, yeah, yeah. I go, have you ever met the artist you're tweeting for? None of them met the artist. And then I'll say, let me make you more depressed. Do you listen to the music? And then I'll say, have you read the bio? And it's amazing because I will say when my kids get to the end of the class, I encourage everyone to drop. They've got three weeks to drop. Like, you can still drop. There is still time to escape my class. The way they think about music is different. And the way they think about how they express about music and the things they consider different. Because I was raised by really difficult editors, difficult meaning they really put my nose to the wheel and made me think about what I was writing and why I was writing it and what did it mean and how do you connect this artist. I was already that kid. You know, my musical epiphany was Angel from Montgomery. When I finally got to interview John, who was playing South Florida, actually when I left the Miami Herald to go to the Palm Beach Post, I wanted to, how did you know? How did you know how she felt? Do you really think it's that bad? Because I've pathologically feared marriage my entire life. So, you know, John was like, well, I was a mailman and I see a lot of people on my route. You know, that's where hello in there comes from. Sam Stone was watching all of his buddies come back from the war and not being able to cope with shell shock and getting strung out. I mean, John is that thinker too. And not everything you do has to be so smart and brilliant and John Prine or Jason Isbellish. But if you look at Kenny Chesney for a minute, a lot of his biggest selling records aren't the fun party ones. It's There Goes My Life, Who You'd Be Today, Anything But Mine, Better As A Memory, You and Tequila, because those are the songs. And I can speak to Better As A Memory because I am Lady Goodman. One of the things that I can say, that was a line I used to get rid of drunk guys when I was underage in bars because I didn't want them to rat out the bar owner that there was a 14 or 15 year old girl in the room. What's the line? I'm better as a memory than as your girl. But the song is I'm better as a memory than as your man. And I thought it gave everybody a get out of free card for not feeling like a whore if you got your chance to ride the pony because he's saying I'm better as a memory. Like, there are all these great things about me, which I used to say, but I would also say, but I'm a train wreck. And it was good. You could usually get rid of men without any real problem. So I thought for girls, it's like, I'm not a whore. It's just, you know, he's this awesome thing, but it's a limited run. When the song became a hit and he started playing it in concert, or before the song, it went in early because the song only took 11 weeks to go to number one put the album as a fourth single back in the top five, it was the men. And when he would play it, they would get this faraway look in their eyes. And what I found fascinating, because I started asking, what, what are you thinking? What's, what's going on? Is they always had that woman that maybe they should have manned up for and didn't. They were trying to tell themselves they did the right thing. And they all, to a man that I spoke to, wished that whoever she was, she was thinking about them right now. Music can do that. Connects everyone because everybody's got regrets, yeah. The beauty of it is you have a place to put it. One of the things about the book, 
I've had more men interviews about the book and the ones that have read it, I think it gives them a license to feel things that they don't get to. We don't encourage men to feel. I think it gives them clarity on things they may not even know they're feeling. You know, I've got a PTSD essay from a woman who watched the Twin Towers fall, ran from the smoke, healed by Patty Griffin. So it's that. And I think music, when it really connects matters, pulls people into it, is when it speaks a truth that you're living other than cold bear, tailgate, moonlight, hot girl. Walk the Lines is out now. It's an amazing read. We're going to go ahead and post that link on our social media so you can click right to it. I love Holly. We have to have her back so soon. And I got to say, the book is one thing, but her story, it just reminds me so much of Almost Famous and Cameron's beautiful career. I feel like he took a lot of her stories and put it into that movie. Clearly some parallels there for sure. Hey, what's going on? This is Bubbles. This is Julian. And this is Ricky. You're listening to Promoter 101. <laughs> if you want to reach out to us, send us an email at steiny at promoter101.net. We will not respond to you. We do not like you. Do not write us. Just kidding. And for those of you keeping track and tuning in for the last couple of days, this is the end of day two of the 12 days of Promoter 101 Christmas. We're not going to leave you Jones in for any more over the holidays. Tune in tomorrow. It's going to be day three of the 12 days of Christmas. We're going to have another special guest for you right here on Promoter 101. This is John Schultz. I'm Windish. Charlie from Crescent Barroom. Craig Newman. Dave Brooks. Dave Chumley here. Dave Ratner. John Holiday. Ted Bicknell. LX. Imong Shah. Kelly Lesko. Gerald B. Henley. Harlan Fry here. Jack Rock. Jason Miller Jeffrey Fox Joe Escalante Blair LeBlanc Martin Atkins Neil Dixon Nick Farkas Paula Palazzo And I'm on Promoter 101 Promoter 101 Promoter 101 Let's have some fun ba 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 ba